Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to Sex, Psychics, and Psychedelics, Discovering Inner Liberation. My name is Banana Jane Garnett. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, a lover of freedom, and a relentless explorer of the mind. Please come join me on my journey in hot pursuit of inner illumination and liberation. For more about me, you can find me at the Banana Jane on Instagram. Now let's dive in. My next guest is psychic medium extraordinaire, Tim Braun. Tim Braun has over 24 years experience helping people talk to loved ones who have crossed over to the other side. He's performed over 17,000 sittings in person and by phone. I had one with Tim a few months ago. I had to wait, I don't know, maybe almost a year to, to get this treasured appointment and it did not disappoint. Tim really has an incredible gift and I'm delighted to host him here today on Sex, Psychics, Psychedelics. Tim, you're providing this amazing service of connecting people to their loved ones and it feels like a great enrichment and it's quite an unusual thing to do. And I'd love to hear where this comes from, you having this gift. Can you tell me the history of your gift? Yeah, sure. So um, it all started when I was about six years of age. Um, at that time, I was seeing, feeling, hearing spirit. But what I was seeing, my brother apparently was seeing too. But 18 years later, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. So when I was six years of age, and he was, he's 18 years older than myself, I meant to say, um, at, that, at that same time, I was seeing spirit. He was seeing spirit, but he wasn't seeing the same spirit that I was seeing. So I thought I was really losing my mind. Wait, so what were you seeing and what was he seeing? So like, for example, I would be seeing um, a, a male, you know, and sense of like, I'd be seeing like my own grandfather who passed over and I was seeing that man, and then he would be looking at the same air energy, and he was, he'd be saying, that's a demon, and that's a, that's a, that's a ghost, and he'd be all wigging out. So what, what I was seeing was very natural and very comforting, but what he was seeing was just off the charts crazy. So that was when I was about six years of age. As I mentioned, he's 18 years older than myself, so this was in his early 20s that he was you know, living at my parents' home with that mental illness. So you know, I thought at that time I was being mentally ill myself because um, I thought I was losing my mind. So long story short is um, fast forward. It wasn't until my early 20s when I was in USC in Los Angeles, University of Southern California. And I was in my dorm room there at USC. And this is 1995 and um, went to sleep, you know, sober <laughs> um, in college dorm room. Um, woke up on a Sunday morning, you know, about 6.30 in the morning. But what I was seeing was the image of Mother Teresa leaving the, the dorm room. And at that time, she was still alive. I'm like, that's really crazy. You know, um, having this dream about Mother Teresa when she was still alive and I wasn't religious or anything like that. So another long story short is I called information and I got a hold of St. Viviana's Catholic Cathedral in downtown Los Angeles. And I said, hey, can you tell me everything about Mother Teresa? 
And they said, sure, you know, um, we have the brothers of Mother Teresa and the sisters of Mother Teresa, which, which number would you like? And so I started to say the sisters because, you know, I'm thinking Mother Teresa is a woman, the nuns. And then right when I said, I'll take the sisters, the voice that I heard when I was six years of age said to me, no, ask for the brothers of Mother Teresa. So that same voice I heard when I was six, seven years of age, you know, I heard that exact same voice that I was so familiar with fast for all those years. So I called the brothers of Mother Teresa and I said to the man, hey, can you tell me anything about Mother Teresa? Because I, the, the dream was me getting off the 747 airplane and she was greeting me there in the airport. And it was just very visual. And, um, you know, fast forward, I um, got, I called the, the number and the man on the phone said, how can I help you? And I didn't want to say I had a dream that I you know, had a dream with Mother Teresa. He thought it was a crackpot. So I um, basically said, hey, can you tell me anything about Mother Teresa? And he says, yes, where are you located? And I said, I'm down here at USC. USC. And um, he said, well, we're just right up the street. Why don't you come over? There's a man that you would be interested in talking to. So drove my 1991 Acura up the Figueroa there in Los Angeles. I was the only Caucasian in this neighborhood. Um, I walked up the, up the stairs of the home that they told me to go to. And this very much of an Indian looking man with his beard, you know, was there and I and it was introduced to him by this Caucasian missionary. And he goes, oh, you must be Tim. And I said, yes. And so um, I met this man, Brother Yeshadas. And fast forward, um, I was there in Calcutta, India with him three months later. And the way I walked off the plane to the way that she greeted me, and I found out later when I was there in Calcutta, India, he was the head of the male missionaries worldwide. And she was the head of the female missionaries worldwide. So um, long story short is... Spirit gave me that dream, says, okay, hey, listen, Tim, you're not crazy. You know, you have a gift and use it. And so at about that same time, right after I graduated from college, um, I started doing my mediumship. And, you know, hence 26 years later of doing this work full time, here I am. Wow. Amazing story. You know, it touches on many interesting things, but the first being about, you know, you and your brother and this fine line between having a, a gift perhaps and having a curse or, you know, being gifted and enlightened and quote unquote crazy. What do you think about that? Is this a real separation or is this a societal thing or how do you understand it? Yeah, I always like to say, Jane, you know, there's a fine line between genius and insanity. And I'm not saying I'm genius in any way. I'm just saying there's a fine line between genius and insanity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah. You know, my, mine went to a gift. Unfortunately, you know, even up until this day, my brother is still institutionalized in the state of Arizona for mentally ill schizophrenia and paranoid obsessive compulsive. So his went, unfortunately, down a path of mental illness and mine went down a path of just doing this work. Of healing mental illness. Yeah. And I imagine some of your calling to heal came from seeing him suffer. <laughs> Very much so, yeah. So what did you learn from Mother Teresa and the missionaries? Well, you know... The thing about me, Jane, is I'm not a kiss ass. So I'm just always myself. And when I was there for the whole 10 days, you know, with Mother Teresa, you know, I was one of the only Caucasian people there that were there amongst the 10, 12 other people that would, would see her every night after prayer. And every time when she would come out of prayer, I would, you know, stand in line with the people that are getting blessed. And and she would bless me. And then I, I figured, I'm like, I need to up the ante. So what I did is I, the, the following few nights, I would put my, my head in between people's elbows when they're standing so close together. So when she would do this blessing, she would just see this mop of head, mop, mop of hair, 
you know, down, you know, in, in the midsection. And then she would always go like this. She would always put her hand underneath my chin and go like this. She would slap my face and then she would basically uh, mess up my hair and she would smile. I was the only person I got her to smile and laugh. Mm. Um, everybody else was all treating her as holier than thou, which sure, she, she, was a, she, she was a saint. She is a saint. But I didn't treat her like that. I treated her like just anybody else. And I just can tell that she just totally appreciated that. But what I learned from her is compassion. That's one thing. You know, in India, you're not judged on your skin tone, your skin color. You're judged on your religion. And for her, as a Caucasian uh, Christian Catholic woman, taking in Muslim children, taking in Hindu children is something that a Catholic woman should not be doing. But the whole country of India, you know, very much respected her. And so, you know, she treated everybody the same. And that's one thing that I learned from her, working with her for those 10 days straight, um, is that, you know, and I'm not religious anyway, but we're all God's children. And there's not one person on the planet that's better than anybody else. You know, we're all going through life and learning our own, own, own lessons, our own experiences. And what I learned from her is compassion and don't judge. Right. And it sounds like you might have learned that you had that gift as well to see that we are all equal and to see your own light in, in her eyes. Yeah. And I'm curious, how did you cultivate, because I imagine there has been a cultivation, but correct me if I'm wrong. How did you cultivate your ability to talk to, what do you call them, dead people or the deceased or spirits? How, what's, what's the vernacular here? The dead. People sometimes you know, ask, um, ask what I do at a, at a party. Sometimes they'll say, oh, what do you do for a living? I, if I want to go down the mediumship route, I'll just say, I'm a medium. And they'll say, well, what does that mean? I'm like, I talk to dead people. And then many times their response is, oh my gosh, like, you know, how do you do that? You do six sessions a day, four days a week, and you're booked up a, about a year. How do you, how do you do that? And I just look at the person. I'm like, I'd rather be talking to dead people than the living. Okay. That's really interesting. We've got to break that down because <laughs> it's funny. Cause I, I, it's like a stupid little joke that I always make around psychics, which is, you know, just because they're dead, you know, why should we give them so much credit, you know? But, but seriously, yeah. Why, why are dead people better to talk to than, than living people? It's not better. It's just what I feel comfortable okay, with. Okay. Okay. You know, so, so why more comfortable? Really, why more comfortable? Oh, yeah. It's my comfortability. I t I'll tell the yeah. person, I'm like, I'd rather talk to dead people than being in a cubicle working 40 hours a week with some boss breathing down your neck. Well, that I understand because it sounds more free talking to dead people than being in a cubicle. But let's say the cubicle isn't involved and it's like a choice between talking to dead people and talking to alive people in the same environment. Why dead? The reason why I like dead is because the dead are very transparent. They're not bullshitters. They say mm. exactly what they feel. So when you're talking to a human, a, a living person, they can say, oh, they can say, oh, Jane, you look great today. And then you turn your back and like, oh, my God, I can't believe she's wearing what she's wearing. She looked ugly. Or she looked bad. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. That's not very transparent. You mm. know, like when I do my work, like my second sitting today, my um, my 12 noon sitting today, um, you know, the person came in stood right behind the client and he put a gun to his head or at least point his finger and he goes i shot myself in the head and i don't regret it and i'm like wow. okay so i told that to the client and she said that's my son and he said that he was going to do this for many months because of his mental illness he just says i want out of this body so for him coming in i'm like i shot myself in the head i don't regret it i perfect wow. it's Gosh. very transparent when you talk to another person, how are you feeling today? Oh, I'm feeling fine. But just in their car three minutes earlier, they're following crime because of financial issues or whatnot. Yes. Okay. That's a that's a great example and I'm and very compelling example. So 
Did you say in the case, in that case, the mother had known that the son wanted to kill himself? Correct. Yeah. So it was very refreshing for her to hear her son coming through, showing how he did it, how he ended his life. But more importantly, as I said to the woman, I said, hey, no offense, but he does not regret this. He's telling me very clearly if he missed, he would have done it again. And she broke down crying and she goes, exactly. That's what he told my husband and I year after year for the last five years. So it's so interesting. So even though she knew it, there was nothing like having it validated that way. She got validated that her son came through. He committed suicide. But the validation was when he said, I don't regret it because he kept on saying this over and over again when he was alive. I'm going to do this. I don't want to be in this body anymore. I'm miserable down here. Yeah, this is a great example as well because, you know, suicide is so, gosh, pathologized, right? What can we learn from dead people? How can we learn to be more direct? What do you think overall they can teach us? No, that's a great question. I feel what we can learn from, at least in the clients that I've seen, and again, I've been doing this for 26 years full time, have done over 18,000 one-on-one sittings now in eight countries. My book is in seven countries, and I've done this work now in, in eight countries. And you know what? It's a consistent pattern, Jane, every time, well, not every time, but most of the time when I'm doing the sittings, is a person coming through and showing their regrets. I just wished I would have told my son I loved him. I wish I would have on that vacation with my wife. I'm so sorry that I was rude. There, it's a lot of regrets. It's really, is it really, honestly, is it really like specific things like, oh, if only I'd said yes to Hawaii? I mean, is it literally oh, like, literally? Oh my God, yeah, absolutely. <gasps> you know, even yesterday's uh, sitting, um, you know, I kept on seeing the island of Fiji. Now, I've been to 32 countries and I've never been to Fiji, but I've seen the pictures of Fiji. I'm like, I'm like, your husband's showing me Fiji. And she goes, like, very plain faced, okay. And I'm like, he really regrets not going there. And she just burst down crying. And she said, he promised me every year in our marriage that he was going to take me. And then he died of a heart attack and we never went. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. All right. So regrets. So, so I suppose some dead people have more regrets than others, right? Mm-hmm. Like the guy we were just talking about, the guy who committed suicide was kind of in a state of no regret. He had done this big act. Or maybe he did have some smaller regrets. I don't know. But I guess if you're younger and you take yourself out, you're going to have fewer regrets than if you're older. Oh, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Okay. It's and especially that woman I just mentioned about Fiji. You know, during the whole sitting, she was very plain faced, and that's fine. I'm I'm a big stickler on people speaking up. When a person comes to my office, you know, I just greet them, say, you know, welcome, have a seat. We're going to do a two minute guided meditation. I explain for about two minutes how this works, but I don't like my clients speaking up during the session, because I always like to say the less the medium knows, the better. Two things that happens when a client comes in and says, oh my God, yes, that's my son. He shot him top of his head. And then she starts talking or he starts talking. I say, hey, zip it. Because when you start giving the medium information, two things happen. Number one, the medium can go off that information, which I call as fraud. The second thing that happens is those on spirit side, they step back and they get lazy because they start thinking to themselves, oh, let's see what else he or she says about me. <laughs> so we always want to keep the meeting working honestly, and we want to make sure that they that they keep on working clearly. And it's I'm all about transparency when we do this work, and so is spirit. And in order to get the validations coming through, we have to get very specific validations, you know, whether it's an age or how the person passed, things like that, in order to really validate that person coming through. Yeah, well, I remember in the reading I did with you, 
there were certain details where it just landed, you know, it was like my deceased grandfather telling me I needed to stretch out my hips. I mean, you didn't, I hadn't said a word to you and I have these chronically tight hips. And I was like, damn, how does my grandfather know about my tight hips? How do you know yeah, about it? Does everyone have tight? But, but there were too many details like that to even, you know, I didn't, I like my, my cynicism flew out the window pretty, pretty damn fast also. Cause I've got, you know, I'm quite tuned in and I can feel how pure you are. And it's no accident that you're seeing people around the clock. Um, but yeah, I think people like to call fraud on psychic talent and mediumship. And um, because it's, it's confusing stuff. I mean, it's actually no more confusing in a way than the fact that we're alive on this planet. You know, having this conversation, it's all pretty nuts if you really look at it. Yeah, you know, I... I've seen over the years, um, um, like when I've done sittings with um, um, a person, and some information is coming through for the living, whether it's for the client's husband or the client's child or the client's parent. And the information is coming very, very specific that that person from spirit is coming in using the client to get to this living person. And I've seen this time in, time out. When I said, do you think that your mother or your son or your father, whatever it would be, do you think they'd be open to mediumship? And they put their hand down. They'll say, "Oh, they've already seen you. They're wa- they're waiting to find out what you're trying to what you're going to say." So they're open to it. But people that haven't sat with me, they're very leery, and they should be because you know, unfortunately, there's been a lot of fraud. There's been a lot of shenanigans out there that really don't have the gift. You know, they might have the heart that they want to help and heal, but they don't have the gift. Yes, and I wonder about people who don't have the gift trying to talk to dead people. Anyway, for example, you know, in my session with you, I connected with my grandfather. And I think he said, meditate with me, you know, to strengthen our relationship. You know, I was going through something in my understanding of who he was during that reading. Uh, I'd never met him before. And he was always a big figure in my imagination. And I was suspicious of him, but I had a healing experience in the reading I had with you. It was sort of a homecoming experience. I saw the warp in my thinking and um, I, I became closer to him. So there was this sort of idea that I should sit with him in meditation, which I have done, not as much as uh, I would have liked. And I, it's been dropping off lately, but I, but I did. And, and as I did those meditations, as I called him into my awareness, this man that I've never met, but that I've always felt <laughs> and that came through in your reading, I navigated this territory that I'm sure many do who don't have such a clear gift as you, which is, am I imagining? Am I summoning? Am I wrestling up? Am I projecting? Am I channeling? Am I receiving? And then, oh, stop thinking about it. Stop thinking about it. <laughs> you know? and, and so, so help me out with that. Like, how do we, how do we hone? So, you know, again, I'm not a religious person. I'm a spiritual person, you know, and I respect all religions and you know, every country that I've gone to, I always go to like a church or a mosque or a temple. Um, I just like visiting holy places. I like visiting the places of spirit and God. Um, but always remember that whatever religion that you come from, you know, and honestly, there is not one religion out there that's better than the other. You know, when we cross over, you know, whether we take the code of Catholicism off or we take the code of Judaism off, we take the code off of any other religion. You know, you stand there in front of spirit and spirit said, okay, so how did that religion make you a better person? Now, in any religion, people do a lot of praying, singing, talking. Now, 
Always remember that praying is talking to God or talking to spirit. Always remember that meditation is listening to spirit, listening to God. So in order to connect with spirit, I mean, I meditate every single day. You know, even for two or three minutes in between sessions, I sit down, clear my mind in order to be receptive for them. So meditation is a very, very big thing. But the more that you do meditation, the more that you're able to practice discernment and you are able to see, is this my own thoughts or is this the thoughts of spirit? But I always tell clients, start off with baby steps. Start off with five minutes a day for meditation. I tell clients, don't meditate more than 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the evening, just because too much meditation can make you a little bit goofy. You know, we lived on an ashram and we had our meals, you know, prepared for us every single day and everything done. Sure, I would be meditating 12, 14 hours a day, but I would be on another level and people would say, oh, this guy's a nut job. He's, he's on an entire, entirely different level. So, you know, start off I love that. Minutes. That's very funny. It's a yeah, very funny minutes, statement and I agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, five minutes, 10 minutes in the morning, but just be receptive, you know, but start off with baby steps, you know. Always trust your intuition. The intuition is the is is the biggest thing that we all have been gifted with. It's just when we hit about six, seven years of age, we lose it. Usually the reason why we lose it is society, our parents, our friends, our teachers, whether it's not appropriate or you're just imagining things, things like that. So it pulls, it pulls that away. You know, it's kind of like I always tell the story, you know, when like let's look at little boy Johnny, who's, you know, four or five years of age. And, you know, the mother says, now go stand over there next to Father O'Reilly and give him a hug. And the child's like, no, no, I'm not going to go over next to him. No, no. And the mother scolds the child. Now go over there and give him a hug so we can take a picture. And the child is just like scared shitless, right? Um, and we find out later that Father O'Reilly really wasn't a good person. But how would we know that? We didn't. The child sensed it. Now let's reverse it. Um, you know, let's reverse it where that four-year-old Johnny is walking out of the grocery store with his mom. And all of a sudden, you know, there's a homeless person right there. And Johnny goes and runs up and hugs the homeless person. And the mother is just frantically furious. Don't ever do this. It's a dangerous. This person's not good. And we find out later that that person really was a good person. It's just that they fell down on hard times. But it's that four-year-old, five-year-old that still has an intuition. As we get older and our society and friends, family say, oh, no, um, you got to think. You don't feel. So I'm trying to get my clients to get back to feeling. Absolutely. Well, I think this is something you and I have in in common, and and I sometimes say it's not it's not about feeling better; it's about getting better at feeling. But it's hard to feel when you haven't been feeling. You know, it's it's usually the reason you haven't been feeling is because those feelings were difficult ones, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they get they get pushed away. So yeah, I think we live in a very disjointed way, and I see that there's a potential in talking with dead people to connect more deeply into the kind of greater ancestral patterns of history and to experience healing going in in all directions, multidimensional healing, which which I, you know, I personally love the idea of. But then that then that also brings up a question in me, which is we are alive now and it's only for a minute really. How much time should we be thinking about the other sides of things and you know how do you see that relationship right well i look at it it is everybody's life on this planet is very individualistic some people they need religion some people don't some people need a good medium some people don't i've had many clients that the mother seen me 
the the children have seen me, that even the children's husbands and wives have seen me. And, you know, there's like, oh, we're trying to get my dad to come in, but he doesn't want to come in. And I said, oh, why not? And, and all the, the family members said, oh, he believes he just doesn't need it. You know, he's heard all the recordings that you have done for the family. And he is just blown away by the evidence that has come through. But he says that he doesn't need to come in because he doesn't need it. That's totally fine. He doesn't need to come in. Some people need it. Some people don't. It's very individualistic from person to person. Yeah. I want to go back with uh, back to what we can learn from dead people. So I suppose, paradoxically, how to live, meaning to live without regret or to die without regret, which is which really means we've got to do everything we want to do right now because we don't know when, it, when we're going to die, right? And being aware of how our actions really, you know, either help people or hurt people. Our, our actions, our words. You know, there's been many times I've seen in different scenarios and sittings where a client comes in, I'll say, for example, oh, you know, um, um, I, I like your shoes. And the client will say, well, I'm just starting to wear them again. I'm like, well, I don't understand. She goes, well, this type of a shoe, you know, when my mother was still alive, she always said when I wear these type of shoes, she said, it always made me look, she says, you always look fat. And she goes, ever since my mother said that, I stopped wearing these shoes. And then she basically said, now that's been three or four years, my mother's passed. I'm like, I'm going to do what I damn well, please. And she goes, I'm wearing the shoes. And I'm like, well, they don't look, they don't make you look fat. <laughs> but again, we have to be aware of what we say to people. Because when you cross over, you're able to see the regrets that you have given to the people that are here. So, yes. Yeah, so it sounds like you get more perspective when you were dead. Is that correct? Yeah, or is it just that you have... Why is that? Is that because you have more time to think about it? You can see from, it's from a distance. You're not like, right now, we're in this, we're in this rat race right now. I mean, yeah. um, and when I say rat race, it's like all of us on the planet are kind of like little mice. You know, in that little looking for the cheese, whether the cheese <laughs> yeah, is sex totally. or the cheese is work or the cheese yeah, is the yeah, glory yeah. or the cheese is whatever. I mean, everybody's looking for their cheese. Um, and then once that rat is taken, you know, no, I'll say rat, but no, it's good. I keep going. I like it. I'm enjoying it. From above and that, that little yeah. mouse goes, oh, there's the cheese. I was bumping in the wall all that time. You know, okay, you where, the- where, where, well, okay, where is the cheese? Is it I was the cheese and I didn't know it? Is consciousness the cheese? Is having a body the cheese? Tell me what's the cheese. It could be. It's, it's very individualistic from person to person. But here's the thing. So I had a client. Um, this is going back, oh, 18 years ago. And she came in and she sat down in front of me. And I said to her, there's this, there's this male behind you. And he's basically holding you very, very tight. He's showing me the age of 33 years of age. And he died of heroin. And he shows me that he was your boyfriend. And she goes, well... I actually had two boyfriends. One died at 32. The other died at 33. We, we weren't seeing each other concurrently, but at different times. Um, and they both died of heroin overdose. She goes, which one is it? So I took a deep breath and I just really mentally with love, I said to the person, can you help heal her heart? Can you tell me your name? Can you tell me who you are? Can you?" And I came from that intuition and also from my heart. It really asked that person. And that person did something that I just opened my mouth wide and she goes what i'm like i can't say it but i will and i looked the other way and i said he says that every time that he gets erect his penis veers to the left <laughs> and when i said that she just broke down crying she goes i thought it was joshua it's actually jacob you know and she just broke down broke down crying because that was a validation because that was one thing that she always teased that boyfriend about is that his penis when erect would always swing to the left that's amazing 
but it's about the validation. You know, it's it's I'm all about the validation coming through when we when we do this work. You know, just to really show and prove that you know there's another level, another consciousness that you know a lot of us are not connecting with. Yes, and I think that I guess that is exactly it. It's connection. I mean, I I feel like everything comes back to that. You know, if you look at look at addiction, you look at mental illness. It's it's always about a lack of connection, and connection is the thing that that validates. So uh, maybe it doesn't matter what we're connecting to, as long as it's something alive with a heart, right? Something sentient. Well, we're here on the planet to really share love, give love, experience love, and look at most of us. You know, we're you know we're judgmental. We're we're in road rage. We're in a different. We're, we're not. We're not here coming here to learn the lesson. You know, um, we're here to learn to love and be loved, and that's what this planet really offers. But a lot of us, um, you know, um, are not learning it, unfortunately. Yes, uh, agreed. Agreed. Back to sex. <laughs> and, and listen, I'm an open book, so yeah. you know, um, whatever you want to ask, you can go for it. <laughs> okay, great. I appreciate that. So, okay, I'm imagining sex comes up in the regret category, does it? Or like, how do people, how do dead people feel about sex? How about that? Let's let's take that. Well, when they cross over, usually it's not about the sex; it's about the connection that they had, you know. And that sex was more of a soulmate connection, you know. That's a, like a, a total connection, total bond. And you know, many times when this comes up about the sex, it's not about the sex; it's about I've told the client. Hey, this is not your husband only. This is your best friend, and this is also your soulmate. This is three people in one. The connection, which is sex part of it, the connection was so intense. I mean, you have to realize on the day that you buried your husband, you have to realize that you just didn't bury your husband. You buried three people. You buried your husband, you buried your best friend, and you buried your soulmate. And usually when you have three in one, I mean, it's it's not about the sex sex, but it's about the connection and about the intimacy. Sure. No, I, I see that that is is the deepest thing. And obviously, death just doesn't change that. And it's, I mean, I think when you really love someone, I mean, I'm in love at the moment. And even when this person is not around, he's still around. You know, if I don't see him, he's still in my head. If he died, he would still be in my head. He's in my head. He's in my heart. Right. That's just the state of things. So it's an odd thing, love, how it it, it you know it, it relates to a body, but it also transcends the physical presence of a body, and I think it's just must be super frustrating to you know to love that deeply and not have that person there. I haven't had much of this experience yet in my life, so I've got some big learning curves ahead on this front. Unless I die before everybody else, which sometimes seems like a, a good idea, you know, the race to death, so you don't have to suffer all of that. But I guess what I was going for on the on the sex and death thing was. And maybe this is me being fanciful, but I, I sort of, I think of dead people like from their perspective that maybe they feel a bit nostalgic about not having a body, that maybe they feel a bit sad about not having a body anymore. And I wonder about the dead people, you know, sitting around at the bar saying like, oh, in those days when I had a cock and I could stick it in things. Well, it's funny. Um, This is going back to a, a sitting last week that I recall where this woman's brother he must have been only about like 42 years of age coming and i said late 30s early 40s and she goes yes i understand and he kept on showing me his biceps and i and i said he also just unbuttoned his shirt shows me his pecs i said usually guys don't do this in a in a, in a sitting i said but he keeps on showing me his looks 
And she basically said, this is how my brother was his entire life. He was so damn vain. And so that that male, that soul, that spirit crossed over, but still has that that vanity there. You know, um, always remember, like if you ask a lot of um, um, Christians and even Jews, but let's just say more Christians and Catholics, and you ask them, hey, what did Master Jesus say over 2000 years ago in the parable, you know, as below, as above? Most Christians, both most Catholics can't answer that. They're like, oh, I don't, I don't know what that means. What that means, if you're going to be a smart ass on earth plane, you're going to be a smart ass on spirit side. If you're going to be a brainiac like Einstein on earth plane, you're going to be a brainiac on spirit side. So that soul, when it transitions, you, you, you take that. So everything that you learn here, everything that you, you experience here, you take it over. And I mean, that would totally explain baby Mozart at five years of age playing concerto number four in D minor. I mean, it's, that's humanly impossible unless that soul reincarnated multiple times as a musician. Okay, so you do believe in reincarnation. Oh, very much so. Yes, most people don't talk about it. A lot of psychics don't talk about it. I'm a firm believer in it. If you look back in the second, second, second to third century AD, uh, Helena, um, the mother of Constantine, she actually um, deleted the part in the Bible about reincarnation because they wanted to control the people. Um, they didn't want people to realize that, okay, um, if I die or I don't obey, I'll be able to come back. So that was taken out of the Bible in the second century AD. Um, so reincarnation, I'm a firm, firm believer in it. I've had so many different clients that have come in over the years where the mother said, you know, to the living daughter, the mother's living, she goes, you know, when my daughter here, when she was five years old, she kept on saying, remember mommy, when I was the mother and you are the daughter? And I've seen that even with mothers and fathers. So we keep on reincarnating in soul groups and we keep on reincarnating in that same soul group until we get it right, until we learn the lessons that we're supposed to learn. That is, it's so nuts. I mean, my daughters are definitely my mothers. I mean, that my daughters, I have two daughters now, 13 and 16. And, you know, often they're my daughters, they feel like my daughters, but there are moments when there's this slippage. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, you're my mother, or sometimes even my husband is fucking yeah. weird. Right. It's so nuts. We talk about it. It's that vivid for us, you know? Mm-hmm. And those are lessons. Always remember, Jane, in life, we don't have any enemies and we don't have any best friends. We only have teachers. And always remember that. So, you know, when you have like a best friend or a lover or a very passionate lover, well, that person's teaching the love, you know? When you I don't have, know why that makes me feel a bit sad, the idea that we don't have a best friend. I suppose that makes me feel kind of sad. Well, we have a teacher, but that best friend is actually teaching us how to love. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, when we have what we would call an enemy, well, that that person's teaching us a certain lesson. So everybody's teaching us lessons on this planet, whether we really super like them or whether we super dislike them. You know, um, I always tell clients, you know, I'm a medium, but I'm far from a saint, you know. Well, you um, know that I was wondering about that. I was wondering what you're learning in this lifetime, Tim. <laughs> right. so, <laughs> so here's something. Um, this is going back, oh, maybe about 14 years ago. I pick up the phone, and it's an area code 562, and I'm like, who's calling me from 562? And I pick up the phone, and it's my sister, Teresa, and she goes, Teresa. And we, she goes, Tim, it's Teresa. And I just froze. This is a sister I cannot stand. She is holier than thou. She wants to burn me at the stake for being a medium. And so I just can't stand her, you know? But yet she's my sister, you know? So what I did is I, 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 I obviously didn't want to pick up that phone ever again, so I put her name... And, and and in the phone as a contact, 
Well, fast forward about six years, seven years later, I'm upstairs. My partner is downstairs and he goes, um, the phone's ringing. I'm like, oh, will you, will you answer it? I said, I'm running downstairs. Just answer it. And he looked at it. And he goes, it says the Antichrist is calling. <laughs> and, I'm like, and I'm like, don't answer that call. That's Teresa. <laughs> so, okay. Now, that's a true story. I didn't make any of that up. With the lesson, she's crazy. With the lesson, I have to learn compassion. And it's hard. You know, I have to learn sending that unconditional love and non-judgment to a person that's just out to lunch. How are you doing with that on a, on a scale of zero to 10? Where are you at? I'm, oh, 10, being, <laughs> 10 being complete or 10 being like... 10 being complete compassion. Yeah. Well, I think I'm about 6.5. I'm still Yeah, I was going to give you a five. I think you've rounded up your 6.5 still as a D plus, but that's still failing. <laughs> if you look at it, if you're being honest. I don't know. I say more than half you're winning and you're doing okay. <laughs> okay. Look, yeah, no, seriously though, with those kinds of relationships, like the real fuckers, if you can get above the line, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. you're doing well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And it, because, because they have the capacity to suck you in completely. Yeah. You know, I did a radio show um, some years back. It's called CBS with Rolanda and her aunt was Maya Angelou. And one thing that I realized about Maya Angelou is that whenever people were around her, they really wanted to be around her. Like I call them the star fuckers. They mm-hmm. had to be around yeah. Maya. They wouldn't be around her. One thing about Maya is if any one of those star fuckers basically said, oh, I'm sad today, or oh, I don't have enough money to pay my rent, or oh, I think my husband's having an affair, she would just walk away from the group. She would not even turn around and say, excuse me, I got to go, or I'm sorry, but I don't want to hear this. She wouldn't even make up a white lie saying, oh, excuse me, I have another appointment that I forgot about. She would just walk away. So the thing is that anybody that ever wanted to hold Maya's attention, they had to watch and think everything that they said and keep that vibration up. And I'll tell you, I I wish I could be like Maya, but it's hard. That's fascinating. I I totally agree with that because I'm too, I'm too much of a, you know, pleaser. I'll hang around and listen to the shit and think, how can I help? <laughs> you know, but, I, but I love the walking away. I mean, it's such a direct statement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, keeping, that, keeping that energy, keeping that vibration, you know, pure. And that's Mother Teresa had that too, you know. Would I'll, she I'll walk away? Why. Would Mother Teresa walk away? What would she do? You know, in that situation? She was just hard-headed. You know, um, you know, one thing I, and even the Catholics, you know, I've been talking about this because I feel from what I've found out, a lot of Catholics don't even know this, but Back in 1947, when she, you know, because the, the, the form of nuns that she started was, wasn't in existence before her. So you have had to ask permission to the Pope to start a new chapter of, you know, a nun or missionary. So she wrote the Pope back in 1947, I would like to go to India to basically start this, you know, with myself to be a nun to cater to the poor. Well, she got impatient in Lithuania and she just got on the boat and basically in our human terms said, fuck it, I'm basically going. I'm not going to wait for the Pope to give us a permission. Now, back in 1947, for a woman in the Catholic Church, oh my God, that's hearsay. That's like blasphemy. That is just horrible. And she didn't care. And that's a stubbornness that I that I really appreciated about her. She would walk into different places around the world and and if if she was staying there, she would say, take out the carpet. She had to have hardwood floors. I mean, like when I say hardwood floors, not like polish or anything. <laughs> yeah. the, the the carpet was a luxury. She didn't want that luxury, so she always was very. Oh, so she she believed very much in sort of abstinence, yeah, I suppose. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. And I admire strong people like that. I, yeah. I really do. Well, like how do you feel about that in terms of 
spirituality. Like, are you are you down with having a comfortable life, or do you feel like we need to deny ourselves a bit? Great question. I always tell clients when it comes up to things financially, I always tell my clients, I want you to be a multimillionaire. I want you to have your Ferrari. I want you to have your Porsche convertible. I really hope that for you. And sometimes people look at me like, really? A medium really wants that for me? I'm like, hell yeah. But I want you to have that balanced out with spirituality. So you'd have to have a shitload of spirituality to balance that abundance out. Yes. Yes. If you look in this country, Dane, you know, we are so materially wealthy. You know, we really are materially wealthy, but really spiritually bankrupt. You know, I agree. And I was wondering if there's a correlation. I was sitting at a fireworks show on July 4th, looking around and everyone's overfed, tons of snacks and just sitting there lumpy on the ground watching these, you know, overabundant fireworks show. I'm like, this is just not right. Do we have too much? Right. So that's here in the States. You go to India, you know, you know, they're materially bankrupt, but spiritually wealthy. Now, both are wrong. You know, it's kind of like when I was a kid, we would have the washing machines and we would put the beach towels in and they would all go to the left, you know, and we would hear that the 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 washer machine buzz like, eh, like a tilt, <laughs> you know. So India is kind of like tilted. It's just it's a lot of spirituality, but not enough material to balance it. You know, here in the States, it's tilt because we have this material wealth, but we don't have the spirituality to balance it. Both are not good. We have to really keep that balance. Yeah, I, I love that analogy. Thank you so much. Um, I know I've got to let you go soon. I know you've had a long day with the dead and with the living. I'm just going to circle back one more time to this. What can we learn from the dead? And I, we've got this no regrets sort of headline. Is there anything else? Well, to really live your life to the fullest without fear. You know, it's so many different times that our society, you know, our family, they care for us so much, but they say, oh, you know, 50% of the restaurants fail. You don't really want to open up a restaurant. Now they're saying that because they're trying to protect you, but that's putting fear on you. And one thing that I could say that I've heard multiple times from people who have come through from spirit, I wish I would have said hell with my dad's company and started my own construction firm. I wish I would not have been an attorney like my father and my grandfather. And I wish I would have been a school teacher. There's a lot of regrets because of the people that were influenced by family members here. So what I would say to you and also to your listening audience is really be integrity, have integrity with the life that you want to live um, and really go for it. And, and if you don't get that support from family, do it anyways, because chances are, if you kind of make them happy, then when you cross over, you're going to say, oh, that was a lesson. I really have to stand up. I love that teaching. But slash and what if your family supports you but you feel scared anyway. Trust God. And I'm not a religious person, but I believe in a power and an energy that we all are able to tap into, each and every one of us. So that's learning, that's learning faith, you know, having that faith, you know. Is um, faith the antidote to fear? I mean, some people say it's love, but what do you think? Um, I think it's both. You know, we have to have that faith that it's supposed to work out. And I always like to say God's will be done, you know, and that's a that's a that's a big thing that I that I, that I always like to say. I want to know what God's will be done means. Yeah, for me, you know, back in 1943, my grandmother was leaving church in Los Angeles and she was lighting a candle in the church and she walked out. Another woman does walk in with her, was lighting candles next to her. And she said to my grandmother, this is 1943. She goes, what were you praying for when you lit the candle? My grandmother said, God's will be done with my four sons in the service. 
And the woman looked at my grandmother and basically thought she was just a nut job. And she goes, well, I'm in there praying that my three sons come home. And my grandmother said, if it's not God's will, it's not God's will. Fast forward to 1945, they met back up at church again, and they ran into each other. And the woman came up to my grandmother, and she said, all three of my sons were killed. And for my grandmother, she looked at her, and she goes, I'm so sorry. And then the woman said to my grandmother, what about you? And my grandmother said, all four of my sons came home. Oh, that's so, a rough story. So the thing is, is that, you know, if you don't want to say God, you can say spirit. You can say the universe, D- divine mother. It's, it's all the same. It's just what you want to label it. Right. But you could say highest good, say, right? Yeah, to the highest good. May the highest good be. Yeah. That would be something to really hold on to. Mm, I like that. I do see the release. I mean, I feel the release in that statement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it Getting out of our own rugged rat race, individualism. The obsession with the cheese, saying, let the higher cheese guide me. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, sure, exactly. I'd like to round up with your wish slash prayer for your work and for, let's go bigger, spirituality in general. I want to help and touch as many people as possible. You know, there are so many people that are grieving. They don't have access to... Um, a healer, a therapist, a medium, and these people are just keeping everything inside. And my goal is to reach as many people as I can and share my gift. You know, I'm going to be starting to do more groups again, um, where before the pandemic, I was doing shows at, at Paula Casino for 700 people. I'm going to start doing more smaller shows for 100 people here in these next few months, just to really get out there and help as many people as I, as I can, giving random messages in the audience. Um, but for me, I really want to help as many people as I can while I'm here. I'm, you're right. We're just here for a minute. And when I'm here, I want to basically help as many people as I possibly can really try to bring that vibration up for them. Well, if I may say so, you are doing a terrific job. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Really beautiful. Okay. Wish for the planet. Um, I mean, really world peace. I mean, if you look at the planet, <laughs> this and if you, might, if you don't mind me saying this word, but the poor fucking planet. <laughs> of course ever since a human being, you know, has been on the planet, what happened? You know, Cain killed Abel. You know, it's like there's been like killing after killing after killing after killing. It's just like, really? This, this planet's like a bloodbath. Poor fucking planet. I yeah, couldn't agree but, but, more. But here's the thing. Each and every one of us has chosen to be on this planet to learn certain lessons. And it's very individualistic from person to person. So what I wish for the planet is really just world peace, you know, and, and I mean, you put me to the, the test here, but this, in my opinion, won't happen in our lifetime, but it'll happen either in our children's or our grandchildren's lifetime where the world will come together. And here's why. If you look at these last three days, it's been the hottest ever in hundreds and hundreds of years. That's global warming. What does that mean? That means the whole planet's going to have to come together and figure out a solution how to stay alive. And that's probably when world peace is going to happen, unfortunately. Well, I hope you're right. I hope it's going to happen that quickly. I have one kind of add-on thought about this. I was thinking about this today, about how self-love is such a big issue. At least it comes to me a lot as a therapist, you know, and this is, I think about it a lot. I think about how hard it is to truly love ourselves. Then I had another kind of reframe on the whole thing, which is, Well, in a way, of course, it's hard to love ourselves because if we really look at the planet and we take responsibility, then we have to look at 
not just the fact that we're deserving of love, which I do believe that we are, but also the fact that we've created a bloodbath. All of us, all of us. And so I'm looking at how can we integrate love, which is very important, not being divided against ourselves, and radical responsibility. We are part of this problem, each and every one of us. I don't care how much you compost. <laughs> you know, we are. I have a book assignment for you. Okay, good. Oh, yeah. Yes. About love. And, I, and I've been doing this with my clients for 25 years now. And it's, it's worked. I get so much feedback from this, you know, year after year. So here's the thing. So I'll just say it to you, Jane. So when you go to sleep tonight, and of course I'm saying this to you, but I'm also saying to, to this to each and every one of your listening audience, audience members. When you go to sleep tonight and you put your, put your hand on your tummy and basically tap the tummy, just kind of like waking up the little three-year-old, four-year-old Jane inside, you know, and you tap the, tap the tummy and you say, okay, little Jane, what did you do for fun today? And see what she says. Now, she might say, having Tim Braun on my podcast was the most boring thing ever. But when we went walking during, you know, in, in Los <laughs> she Angeles, won't say that. we went down to the Venice Beach where you're probably close to it. That was fun. Okay, good. And tap the tummy and say, good. Now, when you wake up tomorrow morning, tap the tummy again and say that little Jane, okay, what would you like to do today for fun? And if we can get back to that little three-year-old, four-year-old inner child, remember children like that, they don't need big ticket items. They don't need Prada shoes. They don't need, you know, this or that. All they need to do is pet a puppy, read a book, take a bubble bath. So what I tell my clients is when, when you wake up tomorrow morning and you tap the tummy and you tell that inner child, what would you like to do for fun? Let's just say that little Jane says, I want to go to the beach today. But you're looking at your schedule and you're like, you know, we, I can't do the beach today, but I'm going to put it on the calendar for next Tuesday because I have next Tuesday off. And you put it on the calendar, beach with little Jane. And if you can every night and every morning say, what did you do for fun? What would you like to do for fun? That really invigorates us as an individual. And then that is like a seed that just germinates and everybody else feels it. Amen. You know, that's, that's the vibration of truth. I think fun is, a, is an unsung hero and heroine. When I did the, the I said this, what I'm going to say right now, when I did the, the documentary, The Cure with Sharon Stone and Deepak Chopra and Mark Wahlberg, you know, many other people when we did this, this documentary. But the tidbit that I put in on that documentary was, you know, each and every one of us on the planet are little, like little morsels on the seashore, you know. And when we, when we shift, when we make a shift, then the other grains of sand have to shift. And then those, those grains next to that has to shift. And eventually, within time, just with us making that shift, we have changed the whole course of the seashore just by us. So that exercise I just gave you regarding the inner child, when we can bring that vibration and that happiness and we get excited, then the people next to us are going to feel that. That's love. And then they feel it and they feel it. So it really kind of starts off with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been such a delight and inspiration sitting with you. You're welcome.